Welcome to Coffee House. What do we think and why do we think it? Does a thought like a parasite invade a host, abuse resources, and alter the biology and behavior of that host? Some thoughts might be benign, like I'll try that restaurant with the nice pictures, or I'll wait for a signal to cross, and some might be immeasurably destructive, like the most important characteristic about someone is their race, or I have a perfectly good burger, why don't I add some pickles to it? Professor Gad Saad, an evolutionary psychologist, published The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense in October of 2020, and we are discussing it today. As always, we will look at the contents, do some analysis about the value of the book, the good and the bad of it, and then do a little bit of a big picture, which goes a tad askew from actually the substance of the book, but I think it's really important. So this coffee house, I appreciate you listening. I was on vacation for, I think I've been to Florida for uh, three of the past five weeks, so it's it's been, uh, it's been something. But we are back, and this was a good one to come back with. I've got about four or five books already downloaded onto the brain now, and we're going to go with those. So the contents. We start off to establish that we are facing a pandemic of bad ideas. We have idea pathogens that are raging their way through our collective understanding. And a lot of this was, uh, you could say, triggered in some way by the emergence of certain phenomena like Trump and Brett Kavanaugh. The emotional response is there too. And Professor Saad has this phrase that he uses. It's called OPS, the Ostrich Parasitic Syndrome. It's a mind virus that causes a person to reject realities that are otherwise clear. So something like gravity, something that is patently obvious, and even goes so far as to call the SJW class intellectual terrorists. Now, I think this framing, and this is me talking, not the book talking, I think this framing of the OPS, of something that causes people to reject things that are patently obvious, that are clear, is kind of extremely important. This is something that is the most concerning about everything that's going on right now. And it takes a good degree of force, although we'll we'll talk a little bit more. We do have to wonder exactly what our brains are built for, but it's going to take some force to convince people that things that are so obvious are not even true, let alone obvious. So, okay, he goes into growing up in Lebanon and how there's a civil war in 1975 where neighbors became instant potential enemies. There was shelling. You were threatened to be mowed down in bread queues. You would have authorities show up and demand to see your religion card. And if you were in the wrong area or showed the wrong thing, it could get you killed. PLO militia even picked up people at their homes. And he remembers this one moment as a child when they were on a plane and they were out of Lebanese airspace and his mother pulled out a Star of David and put it on him and said that you don't have to hide anymore. And this, of course, dramatically puts into perspective the kinds of things that we complain about now. But so he has a background where he was in these kinds of situations. This is something that he had to deal with and had to survive when he was a kid. And he's Jewish. He grew up in a Jewish family. And so he finds it gravely concerning when he sees uh, bad ideas that are spreading throughout a population. So idea pathogens as parasites of the mind. OPS is a rejection of truth in defense of ideology, and the way he treats it is he sees it as a pathogen, as a literal pathogen, so you need a targeted vaccine that's going to affect these things. He references Dawkins, I believe at this point, where he talks about memes and the selfish gene, Dawkins the selfish gene, and that we must approach these kinds of idea pathogens like a virus. Now, again, this is me cutting in. Of course, this is something that we've talked about on many an occasion. Uh, mimology is one of those areas that is woefully underdeveloped. I'm sure there are some people who have taken little stabs here and there at it, but I think it's the frontier. It's the thing that will branch the hard sciences and the soft sciences to make for a much more effective understanding of why we think what we think, how we think, and what we need to do going forward. Death of the West by a Thousand Cuts. This is the title of one of his chapters. 
He has this idea of epistemological dichotomania. So this is a hyperactive desire to construe phenomena as consisting of binaries. Of course, this is a heuristic that humans use. It's something that we have to do. We're structured to do that because we don't have the processing capacity to be able to do much more complex thinking. So breaking things down into binaries is a method for being able to digest all the information that's out there in the universe. Here, he puts a, a term on it, epistemological dichotomania, and I think it's really important to point out. It's something that is easy for us to look at. It's something, you know, we have competitions, you know, where much of the time it's one side versus another side. It's, it's appealing to be able to look at things in these black and white ways because it's digestible. And there might be kind of another step here where you can say that just like you can have a particular kind of diet and when you eat something, you either are capable of digesting it or not. Just like uh, different people could be capable of digesting different ideas in different ways. So here, he specifically just wants to bring up this, uh, this concerning practice of being hyperactive in your creating of binaries. And obviously that's something that everybody has to be aware of and everybody engages in from time to time. And Professor Saad, he goes, I think the next chapter is called Thinking versus Feeling. Of course, he wouldn't say that that's a genuine binary, that that's you're either thinking or you're feeling. But it is funny that it comes right after that. So, But his point is that something like how much somebody hates Trump, their anti-Trump inclinations, could come from peripheral processing, like you don't like his mannerisms, so you have this feeling against him. And he has the perfect way to describe anti-Trump sentiment. It's coming up in a second here. But you end up in a space where feelings take the place of truth. So the ultimate goal and all of our number one values should be heading toward that, that truth to one degree or another. And you end up with feelings taking place of that truth. We talk about Trump in this next chapter. Donald Trump is going to end the world. And of course, everybody remembers this. There were calls of uh, how Donald Trump was going to cause a holocaust, a genocide. The stock market was going to plummet because he's so, so terrible. I remember uh, there was one, I think I saw it on Twitter or something like that, where one woman, right after she realized that Trump had won, she said, we're all going to die and started crying. <laughs> this is what we're dealing with. But this is the perfect encapsulation of what Trump was. Trump represents deep and visceral aesthetic injury to the ivory tower. Deep and visceral aesthetic injury to, ivory, to the ivory tower. I think that is the most perfect encapsulation of what Trump represented to the other side that I have ever seen. <laughs> That's what it was. It was the aesthetic injury. So that's why it was so little about the substance, and that's why they got so angry whenever something went well. So if he did something well, or the economy was doing well, or his foreign policy was pitch perfect, it wasn't about any of that, any of that substance. It was about the aesthetic injury. And it was in contrast to the platitudinous hope that came from politicians like Barack Obama. And then you have Hillary Clinton on the other side who has her deplorables comment and was subscribed to by academia. But in this competition between Trump and Clinton, what people did was they picked a most important policy when it came to the majority of people, at least. They picked a most important policy and they chose who was best on that policy. Trump specifically focused on policies when he was campaigning, while Clinton mostly focused on how terrible the orange man was. And I'll add to that and how it was foreordained that based on her identity that she ought to be the one to be president. Then we have the Brett Kavanaugh debacle. This is the next chapter. And how political tribalism superseded anything related to truth or reality. And at once it didn't work to all the attacks on him, all the outlandish attacks on him. Then they switched to he didn't have the judicial temperament. And that's the reason that he shouldn't be a member of the Supreme Court. 
But this wasn't restricted, obviously, to Brett Kavanaugh. There were others like uh, Summers at Harvard, someone named Summers at Harvard, who said men, men and women were different, which, of course, uh, just patently true. It's one of those things, one of those in incredibly obvious things to say that you're not allowed to say at this point. And they were fired. You have Steven Pinker. I remember he did this large presentation specifically about IQ distribution and the differences between IQ distri distribution when it comes to men and women. And he explicitly said that shouldn't all things be within academic rigor. So again, that's the classical liberal mindset, which is not prevailing amongst the, the loudest of, of leftists today. And the James Damore memo, which positions were well supported, of course, in the memo, but fired by Google. There was another researcher who made this comment, which of course was not going to be acceptable. But when he was talking about women in the lab, he says, you either fall in love with them, they fall in love with you. And when you criticize them, they cry. Of course, that wasn't going to stand. We go into here a little bit. Identity politics are antithetical to science. There are no revealed truths based on identity. And he references these land acknowledgement state statements, which are hilarious. I think Microsoft just did one of these, didn't they, during one of their presentations? Where they said, we acknowledge that we stole this land from Native Americans, and we're so awful for that. We're not going to give it back, but uh, we acknowledge that it was stolen. And the IAT, the Implicit Association Test, we've talked about that before, and how even the originators of the test tried to rein in what it was being used for. The bias in academia and, and tech companies and other industries that deal with information, just lots of bias politically when it comes to those. And then the developing anti-science, anti-reason, and illiberal movements, so specifically around gender in this case. Brings up Jordan Peterson's Bill C-16, of course, Jordan Peterson's jump-off point. And the conceptual penis. This was, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, this was a uh, fake academic paper. And I think it was James Lindsay was one of the writers on those, on that particular paper. And what they did was, it was just all nonsense. It was just all newspeak nonsense. And they tried to get it published in a number of academic journals and were successful in a few. Then there's a discussion of toxic masculinity, and uh, one of the things that uh, Professor Saad loves to do is use satire. Uh, he does a lot. He duped, who was it, Charlie Kirk at some point with his satire, and many, many others on the left and right. And in this particular case, he had preempted a lot of what would come in saying that, you know, we need feminist mathematics or <laughs> identity-driven mathematics and feminist geology. And he did this satirically, but then this kind of thing uh, showed up in reality. You would eventually get classes that were specific around this that we need to decolonize these hard sciences uh, to make them more equitable in the way that we study the science, not just in, in who is studying it or anything like that. And then he uses this uh, analogy here for when it comes to determining that men and women are the same. So he talks about dogs and giraffes. So you look at dogs and giraffes, if you only look at particular characteristics, so you'll see that, okay, they both have four legs, they have two eyes, they have one heart, they have a digestive system and a tail, so they must be the same species. And it's the same kind of uh, shallow thinking that would let you say that the genders are the same. He asked the question, what are universities for today? And this was the concern, is that universities seem to be for maximizing intellectual growth while minimizing hurt feelings. And when you have those two things in conflict, you're not going to get very far. And he offers some answers later on. But there's this idea here, the homeostasis of victimology. He says this is that we must have a set level of victimhood. It must be achieved. So if there aren't enough victims around, then they have to alter the definition of victim to be able to artificially increase the number 
numbers and meet homeostasis of victimhood. And doesn't this seem so just patently correct? <laughs> it just seems so obviously right in that if we have to, we've been, this is something that we've been doing just constantly over a couple of decades now, is just broadening the category of victim rather than trying to root out or being able to squash these particular victim categories or lessen the number of those victim categories. Of course, this is kind of the, the Steven Pinker line that everything's been actually getting much, much better over time. Instead of being able to squash those out and say that, okay, well, we've mostly eliminated victimhood in all these various categories, they say, no, we still need this level of victimhood in society. So therefore, we have to expand the definition and now look at all these victims that are going to fill this role. When it comes to trying to explain the phenomenon of this concept creep, that's just something that makes a whole lot of sense. Then he, he calls male social social justice warriors, he calls them a, a name that I won't reproduce here. Uh, this is a kind of mating strategy, and so they just kind of agree. This is not a new phenomenon. This is not something that has never been or anything like that. There have always been men who just try to agree with a woman as much as humanly possible in hopes of sleeping with her. But in this particular case, so this mating strategy, you can actually look at the, the physical characteristics, the physical features of the male, and you can compare them. And you can see which ones, based on that, you can predict which ones would pursue this particular strategy versus, you know, the classical one or another kind of strategy to try to get laid. So uh, the sneaky efforts uh, is what he calls them, the male SJWs. There's a bit here where he goes on about the kind of rationalizations that elite liberals use when they talk about Muslims, and then uh, goes into profiling. This is something, of course, Sam Harris, who I don't think I've mentioned his name in a long time. He annoyed the hell out of me during the last election. But he talks about profiling here, profiling, the idea that profiling is racist. So if you take certain people of certain groups disproportionately and suspect them of engaging in, you know, terrorist behavior, then that's considered racist. But of course, reality is reality. And we all make probabilistic determinations on limited information. And if you were, say, walking down a dark alley and you saw a group of young men, it would be very different from if you saw a group of old women. Now, there is a possibility, there is a possibility you're going to get held up by the Golden Girls if you're walking down that dark alley, but it's far less likely than would be the case with a group of young men. And so what we end up with is the absurdity of having random checks where Professor Saad's two-year-old daughter ends up held for extra questioning <laughs> when they're doing random checks at the airport. And then we get to the big stuff. This is the, the heavy, the meaty stuff here. Nomological networks of cumulative evidence. So this is how to seek truth. Of course, he recognizes and acknowledges that it's hard to change people's minds. We are evolved not to seek truth, but to convince others. Remember, we evolved in these kind of small tribes of, of 40 or so individuals. And so it was better for us historically and over the long term for us to be more inclined to side with our tribe, no matter reality, than to be willing to seek this this higher value of, of looking for truth and being willing to see the moral depravity in our group relative to another group. So it was better for us when it came to evolution. It was better for us to be more tribalistic. So when it comes to how to establish, how to establish truth through the nomological method, he explains that science is not immune to the foibles of human nature. Obviously, we have tremendous limitations, but eventually good ideas prevail. And some of the things that we use are things like studies being able to be replicated independently. And in the social sciences, they have an abysmal rate of the ability to reproduce the results of studies. Then you have literature reviews, so you have this whole collection of literature that everybody's reviewing everybody else, so they all build on each other. And you have meta-analysis, where you combine numerous studies into mega-studies, and you put those together. 
So as a, an example, he uses Darwin here. So when it comes to nomological networks of cumulative evidence, Darwin amassed his evidence from many different areas. It wasn't just one area, like say of biology, or one piece of evidence, or one species, or something like that. He went from a bunch of different areas, collected data for decades, and used all that information together. And of course today, especially, evolution is an excellent example of having strains of evidence from a whole bunch of different areas areas that all dovetail into one idea, you know, whether it's what's it called dendrology or something like that, or dendrochronology, biology, genetics, geology, when you put all these things together, taxonomy, you put all these things together and they all trickle down into the and support the same idea. So he uses some examples here, and this is great. So I think he uses three kind of major ones uh, to show how this this works in particular. So toy preferences the nomological method here. So you have trucks and dolls, and what a sociologist you know, on the left would say today is that this is something that's downstream. It's something that's learned over time. That boys learn that they're supposed to like trucks, and girls learn they're supposed to like dolls. And this is something that seeps into toy manufacturers, so they pick up on it, and then that that's the reason that they do it that way. They market it that way. But there are several studies, not just studies, because this is this is the method. You have studies that show that it's biological, that it's something that starts early and isn't inculcated sociologically. But you can look at these various different things. So you have like a consistent difference when you're looking at men and women between the ratio of index and ring fingers. And I was looking at my hands, and I don't have quite the distinction I was hoping. But the in men, the ring is longer than the index in males, um, but they are, they are virtually the same length in females. So you can look at your, your hands here, and you can see whether your hands follow that or not. Like I said, mine aren't... <laughs> aren't particularly as indicative as they should be. I'm sure I'm holding my hand in the right way, actually. But so you could see a correlation. There's a correlation between that, just the shape of the hands, the length of those two fingers relative to each other, and risk-taking. And then you have girls who suffer from disorders that increase testosterone will show male preferences, male toy preferences. And in addition, you have chimpanzees, which show, based on gender, the same toy preferences. And as part of this, so you have all these different areas of inquiry that are coming down and supporting this one idea, but you also have to anticipate and address any counter that could come to it. So somebody wants to say society, okay, you can look at Sweden, which has the greatest gender parity in the world, and yet the toy preferences maintain in Sweden. And some may say that it's just Western civilization, but there's uh, this one researcher, Rossi, who studied this idea in tribal areas. Now, they didn't have uh, toy trucks versus toy dolls, but you had girls who would play disproportionately you know, to a wide margin with dolls, and the boys wouldn't. So you have all these different areas that are going to one question, and you put them together to try to figure out what's, what's the correct answer here. And then he goes on, he does the same kind of analysis with sex-specific preferences. So how uh, the desired attributes for the different genders is very different. Women who are erotomaniacs, they fantasize about high-status men showing interest in them. And males fantasized about young women. And then when you have females of high status, so that's one one area of inquiry, one thing that is coming down to support this this particular idea. But then when you have female of a high status, they don't show the same polygamy interest as males do. Males who are high status are much more likely to want to have polygamous relationships or at least date multiple people at the same time. So that's another one that supports this particular contention. And then uh, how much information is needed to reject a potential suitor. Women need much less information and evaluate more suitors than men do. 
and men tend to fear paternally uncertainty. That's the thing that they're worried about, whereas women fear being abandoned. So you have all these, uh, the differences and attributes, you have all these that go together to support this one particular idea. And then he goes into Islam to kind of develop, this is the nomological networks of cumulative evidence again, but here he talks a little bit more about parasitism of ideas. Because you have to consider uh, things like mortality rate and infection rate and how those things are going to spread on that basis. So in the world, there are about 14 million Jews, whereas there are 1.8 billion Muslims. And religions are meme plexes. They're giant complexes of memes that are all packaged together. So the question becomes, why is the Muslim meme more contagious than the Jewish meme? And there are different reasons for that, likely reasons for that. So barriers to entry for Judaism, higher barriers to entry, whereas for Islam, you tone one sentence and you're Muslim. Your ability to leave the religion. Judaism doesn't follow the death sentence for apostasy, whereas Islam does. So that's another reason where it'd be a stickier meme. There's only one Jewish country. <laughs> There's Israel. Whereas there are 57 members of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, the OIC. 57 countries in that. Islamic history is replete with conquests. So they converted or killed hundreds of millions of people. So there are numerous reasons why that particular meme or meme plex might be more sticky than the other one. Then we get into a call, call to action here, which is always a good part. But the call to action, first they came for the communists and I did not speak out because I was not a communist. This is a, a quote, and I think most people should have heard this by now, but second they came for you know a different group and I didn't speak out because I wasn't that group. And eventually they came for me and there was nobody left to speak for me. That's the, that's the gist of the quote. You have this effect of the bystander effect or the diffusion of responsibility. When there are a lot of people around, and this is something that could happen just by virtue of you knowing about people like Professor Saad or, you know, anybody on Twitter or whoever else is putting work in, you might think that, okay, it's not my responsibility personally, just like if you were a bystander and there was something going on. I don't have to call the police. I don't have to intervene. There are a bunch of people here. They can do it. But he tells you, he implores you, speak your mind everywhere. You need to be challenging this stuff from every angle in every place. And that's something that's not necessarily easy to do, but it's much appreciated and something we all should be doing. Do not be afraid of judging others or giving offense. Huge, huge deal here. A deep friendship should be anti-fragile. Of course, he references our boy uh, Taleb here. Taleb, right? Uh, <laughs> anti-fragile, specifically. If you have, a, you have a deep friendship, then it shouldn't matter. You know, you should be able to talk about these sorts of things without being worried about giving offense to the extent that it's going to break friendship. And this time, <laughs> I told this to somebody recently, and he was like, oh, that is, that is a great way to structure this. But it's Henry Thomas Buckle, an English historian, he said there are three classes or orders of intelligence. And I, uh, before I had read this, I actually, I know I talked to Tiffany about this, but how I classified uh, intelligence as well. But so here, there, he says there are three classes or orders of intelligence. The lowest one is always talking about persons. The second one is always conversing about things. And the highest one is a preference for discussion of ideas. So with three tiers, three tiers, that's, that's the highest tier is a preference for discussion of ideas. And he talks about judgment here. He specifically brings up the pericope adulterae in the New Testament because people will bring it up and say, you don't get to judge, you know, don't judge lest ye be judged. But he's saying that it specifically addresses moral hypocrisy. That's what it's about. And it's a curious phenomenon and it's hypocrisy to hold your own culture to astonishingly punishing moral standard while not doing that for other cultures. And of course, that's something that, I mean, it's just par for the course nowadays. <laughs> 
throws a little shout out here to Thomas Sowell and Christopher Hitchens. Always, always love to see that. But specifically, he's saying that it's acceptable to judge and you should judge. And do not virtue signal. This is a big one too, the way that he puts it here. So he brings up the peacock tail and how the peacock tail, it's loud and brash and it makes you more likely to be attacked by a predator, but it's a trustworthy signal. And that trustworthy signals of your virtue must be costly. That's the big question. Is your signal of virtue, is it costly? That's what shows virtue. In this one particular tribe, there were these ant gloves, these gloves that were full of these biting ants or stinging ants. I think biting. (laughs) These biting ants that were in these gloves. And uh, as a part of their coming of age, they would have to wear these gloves for an extended period of time while they're being, you know, eaten alive by these things. And they'd have to do 20 times (laughs) to to get past this this step. And this is a costly virtue. This This is showing your virtue by virtue of the cost of doing it retweeting is empty signaling and of course that's something that we all fall into at some point that's not showing your virtue just retweeting something that doesn't have cost unless you're uh, someone who's a liberal nowadays and you retweet ben shapiro or something that's something that could have a have a cost but one thing he says about himself is that he would not be able to sleep at night knowing i had sacrificed a millimeter of truth or an ounce of freedom for selfish reasons and if everybody, if everybody did that, if everybody felt like that, I thought that was a, a beautiful way of putting that, and it's much appreciated. And he says here, activate your inner honey badger. He loves this animal. <laughs> it's so aggressive that it can fight a group of lions on its own. He says, never cede an inch to those who wish to silence you, use their tactics, and be ferociously uncompromising. In this in this particular case, I think he's, he's absolutely right. Be ferociously uncompromising. Don't give them an inch on any of this stuff. And here we get some tips on how to fix our university. He says, right now, insanity is rewarded. You have to fight unconstitutional speech codes. Do not suffer safe spaces. Encourage diversity of opinion. Return to meritocratic ethos. And he laments the fact that the credits required, just in general, the credits required for graduating are decreasing. The MBA requirements are being watered down. We have grade inflation. The most common grade during Vietnam was a C, and now it's an A which is just sad to think about, just thinking all the work that you put in, you know, when we were kids, all the work that we put in to try to get those A's, and now they are meaningless. And protecting fragile egos from competition does no one any good. So he gives, gives us some tips, some tips on universities, some tips in general, what we need to do, how we need to better ourselves and better society. So we can go into the analysis from here. Obviously, as I was going through it, I pointed out a lot of good ideas that I liked, and his personality really comes through. I listened to a couple of his podcasts just so I can get a gist of the guy, and there definitely seems to be a sincerity in what he's trying to accomplish that is much appreciated. It's something that, like, he is somebody who is willing to push back wherever he needs to push back. And he uniquely approached a number of the topics that we have seen addressed in other works. He kind of came at them in a different way. And because he has an evolutionary psychology background, there were a number of bigger ideas that he could codify in a, in a more effective way than a lot of the other ones. You know, his big idea is about coming to better answers. So it didn't seem like he was trying to come to too many empirical conclusions. And he didn't seem to do that haphazardly from what I can remember. But again, his whole point and his approach was to try to come to better answers by using the method that he talks about. 
So there are big ideas here that might modify how we approach these issues. So bad idea as mind viruses. Obviously, that's a great way to treat them, not just because they are dangerous and there's something that is not necessarily that the, the host has control over what they're doing to them, but that it could lead to an expansion of a discipline that I think is completely necessary to move psychology into a post-Copernican era. And then this nomological networks of cumulative evidence, uh, I mean, should be the standard. It should be the standard expectation that whatever we're studying, whatever we're trying to figure out, that we're trying to use as many strains of evidence to support that contention that we possibly can, and that anything lacking that we should be extremely suspicious of, and any person who's trying to draw massive conclusions without doing that, we shouldn't take them seriously. One of the worst things about contemporary humanity is the studies show fallacy. And is that what I called it? I know I tried to coin this and I can't remember what <laughs> this new fallacy, but I can't remember now if that's what I ended up calling it. But studies show fallacy, meaning somebody who just says, uh, there's X study, I read the headline, and so I'm using that as some kind of ironclad demonstration of a proposition, even though I don't understand anything behind it. So we should be putting together multiple strains of evidence from various disciplines to try to say that this is this is what it is. And then OPS, the ostrich parasitic syndrome, the fact that people are rejecting things that are completely obvious based on ideology, I mean, obviously that is something that we need to be aware of and attack wherever we see it. And it's good that he was able to point it out in a memorable way. So big picture wise, obviously big picture. In the micro and near term, we have to understand what's happening with people so we can challenge and alter the behavior. You know, Western civilization might be on the line when it comes to that. So I see that for sure. But there is risk in prying open this Pandora's box. There's a value in thinking of humans as opaque churning of mysterious inclinations. There's value in that. There's value in seeing humans as romantic and mysterious boxes <laughs> that have their own kind of built-in intrigue. There's value in taking pleasure in seeing the complexity of humans as special and meaningful. It's easier to see something as divine when there is room for divinity. I mean, if we were all angels, it would be perfectly fine. You know, we could be as honest with each other as humanly possible and figure everything out and, and move on as a species in a positive way. But we certainly have our demonic tendencies. And when you let demons in, you never know necessarily what's going to happen with it. Now, I want us to understand humans more than anyone. I, I want to understand how they function, why they function, why they do what they do, how they do what they do, all of those things. But sometimes it does feel like being lost in mad science is something that we push as hard as we can, and we don't really know what's going to come out the other side. I mean, I would hate a moment in our history when we realized that it wasn't creating AI that could trick us into believing it was human that was the next great leap, but in realizing that we've been the AI all along. So we'll go ahead and leave it there. That is uh, Coffee House for this week. This was The Parasitic Mind by Gad Saad. And I definitely recommend it. And we are going to try to incorporate this idea of nomological networks of cumulative evidence when we're talking about empirical answers to questions. But from here, okay, so that was that. Uh, we are going to throw in a discussion episode, and then the next book is going to be, drum roll please, Hate Inc., I believe, is going to actually be the next one. And man, oh man, am I going to have a lot to say about that one. So uh, definitely tune in to that one, Hate Inc. Uh, it's by some guy, and uh, we're going to have a lot to say.
But this week, thank you very much, Professor Saad. Uh, it was a great read. It was definitely worth the time and effort that went into writing it and the time and effort that went into reading it. And uh, for everybody else, I hope all is well, and I will see you on the next one. All right, bye. Bye. <laughs>